0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to John chapter 8. Uh, This morning as we begin to read it, we will be beginning in verse 48. You might not know it and you might not believe it, but there are men in this world who think that it is uh, not only normal, uh, but okay and uh, comforting to them to dress up and to act like dogs. And I don't mean like to, to do this sporadically. This is like kind of Part and parcel of what their life is. And I don't mean like just kind of playing around with their kids. I mean that they do this with other grown people and they do this as a comfort to themselves. They have like full body Lycra suits that they put on that have like spots on them and stuff and dog hats and everything. It's, It's very, very strange. It's very interesting in sort of a bad way. Uh, they, they act like dogs. They have handlers like dogs. They generally feel as though such play is good for them, and they are comforted in the world by this. Writing in the, the Guardian uh, from the United Kingdom, uh, a woman named Nell Frizzell writes this. Puppy play, that's what they call it, puppy play, is about more than just outfits and surface level power games. It's about being given license to behave in a way that feels natural, even primal. Now, I want to stop Stop there. There is nothing about a human being acting like a dog that ought to feel natural. I don't know if you realize this, but you're not a dog. There, there's like a whole species of difference between you and dogs. So at the very front of this, saying that something like this feels natural says that there's something very wrong with how we view natural in, in our world. Natural just means that they like it is basically what it means. She goes on uh, quoting somebody. You're not worrying about money or food or work, says Tom, who works as an engineer and a theater. It's just the chance to enjoy each other's company on a very simple level. There is nothing simple about that. Uh, we, we read through history and we realize that a great deal of the end of Roman uh, empire was due to the decadence in it. And there are people in Rome who would stand up and say, yeah, but that's a bit much. Like that, You guys are taking this a bit far, right? The, you got, you've got grown men who are engineers in theaters that are pretending like they're dogs and doing this as though it's a normal thing. This isn't like how a five-year-old would pretend. These are grown men doing this in public before God and man. It is a sign of tremendous, tremendous decadence. These people seem to be, and I am not a psychologist, but they seem to have mental issues. seems to be something not going on right upstairs that makes them think that acting like a dog is a normal grown man human behavior. The question then comes to us, should we think of Jesus in the same vein? Not that he dressed up like a dog, not that he didn't think it was normal to be human, or that he thought that pretending and playing to be another species was okay but that he is, on some level, a man who claimed to be on par with a poached egg. So we can quote then from C.S. Lewis. Writing in Mere Christianity, Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is. God. Now, that's a very famous passage from C.S. Lewis, a very famous argument that Lewis puts forward, really going against the liberal Christianity of his day. He wasn't actually the first to put that kind of argument forward, but he is the best known, probably because he puts it so eloquently. The question before us is, how are we supposed to tell if he is a lunatic, a liar, or lord? And if we are going to have that question put to us, there is no better place in scripture to kind of plumb that idea than John 8:48 through 59. So if you would read that passage of scripture with me. John 8:48 The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of our God. Let us think first of what it might mean for Jesus to be a Lunatic. Jesus has been sparring with the Jews about their father, Abraham. There's been a bit of contention about this. He said back in chapter 8, I know that your father is Abraham, but that's not who you're acting like. You're acting like your other father. Your other father, back in chapter 8, uh, earlier in chapter 8, was none less than the devil. They hear him say these things to them. They hear him talk about Satan. They hear him talk about how Satan is their father and not Abraham, and they say, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. The reason why they're doing that is because, one, calling him a Samaritan clearly distances them from him. You are not a part of us. We know that you're claiming to be a Jew, but you must not be a Jew. Remember that Samaritans and Jews kind of fought with one another because they claimed the rightful inheritance of the Old Testament and Abraham as their father. So which one was right? Was the Samaritans right that they had the true religion or were the Jews right that they had the true religion? So they're saying, if if you don't think that it's us, you must be none less than a Samaritan and more than that, you must have a demon. Now, all this has sort of a, a playground ring to it, right? Because what Jesus has just got done saying is Abraham is not your father. Your father is the devil. And they say, oh, you must not have Abraham as your father and you must have the devil, right? So if you are ever confronted with somebody who is, is making fun of you and you don't know what to do, just call them the same names back, right? That's exactly what the Jews are doing here. They say, hey, you think that we're not Abraham's kids and you think that we have a demon? Well, maybe you have the demon. I'm not trying to draw a direct line between demonic possession and insanity, but at the very least, what they're saying is, you are not in your right mind. Anyone who would claim that we are not Abraham's descendants. Anyone who would claim that anyone who is Abraham's descendants actually belongs to Satan cannot be thinking right. And especially a Jewish man must be crazy to assume something like that. You must be out of your ever-loving mind, Jesus, to think that we, as Abraham's children, could possibly be children of the devil. Simply because, mind you, simply because, We do not fully agree with you on your crazy and outlandish claims. You must not have all the lights on upstairs. Something something is awry in your thinking. You are outside of rationality. I have no doubt that that is what they're getting at when they call him demon-possessed when they say he has a demon. And when Jesus re-ups those charges and, again, reinforces the very things that they think that he is insane for, that's why they come back and they say, now we know you have a demon. You can't be in your right mind. You must be a lunatic. Notice what Jesus does here. He simply and patiently reaffirms everything that he has said. He doesn't come back with a, a... very demeaning remark to them. He comes back and he simply reaffirms everything that he has said. He says, listen, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Jesus comes back and he says what he's said all along. I am my father's son. I I do what my father has called me to do. I I am doing only what he has shown me and I do only what he tells me and I do only the things that are pleasing to him. This is my goal. And so I don't care. I don't care if you don't give me honor. He knows that the Father will give him honor. And please put aside for a second and just think through the importance in your own life of believing and trusting in the Father's approval of you. What Jesus is saying here is all of you, all of you, might think that I am a lunatic and all of you might go away from me and never follow me. All of you might disown me, but I'm okay because I know that everything that I say, everything that I do, the Father will rightly appreciate, love, and confirm. He will make it right in the end. Think of how much disrespect, how much dishonor, how much mistreatment you could put up with if you truly believed that God was with you and that he would make everything right again? How much would you be able to put up if you knew that every wrong was made right, that God would erase and undo every slander that was done against you, that he would make right every persecution that happened to you, that he would... Not only clear your name, but bring to shame those who stood against you. And this is precisely what happens. This is precisely the thing that the Bible holds out for us, that God will make right in the world, and he will be shown to make it right. People will recognize what is true and what is not. Why are we not more patient with people? Jesus is being horribly slandered here, and what he does is turn around and give them the exact same offer again. Yes, it's a conditional statement. If, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. But he's putting it before these people again, hoping that they might hear his word and they might keep it. If God tells you, you're good, then friend, you ought to be good. If God tells you, I approve of you, that ought to be enough for you. You ought not need to find approval in anyone else. That doesn't mean that we are not to come alongside one another and encourage one another. That is one of the ways that we know that we have God's approval. But if you truly had enough faith, if you truly saw the world like Jesus did, you would be able to stand up against any kind of persecution. Romans eight thirty three, Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. In other words, if you have God's approval, what does it matter? Satan could stand at the front of a line of five billion people accusing you of all of your guilt. And Paul says, who cares? Who cares how many people think that you are rancid and how many people think that you're dirty and how many people think that you are worthless? If God gives you his approval, if God justifies you, then none of that matters. 1 Peter 2. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus says, I don't need to honor myself. My Father will honor me, so I don't glorify myself. So after reaffirming his place with God, he then reaffirms his offer. Not only is he the one who isn't seeking his own glory, he seeks the glory of God and the judge of all the earth, the Father in heaven, is the one who seeks his glory. He then reaffirms his promise to them. If you keep my word, you will never see death. You just you won't see it. This offer is precisely the offer that he has offered at least three times during this festival. Back in chapter 7, verse 38, he says, Whoever believes in me will have water springing up in him for eternal life. In 8.12, whoever follows me will always have continual light. In 8.31, whoever abides with me will have nothing but freedom. All are pointing at the same reality. To have water continually, to walk in the light, to be free, is nothing less than to never ever see or taste death. It is to be freed from the clings of death. It is to be freed from the curse that came down in Genesis 3. Many folks read passages like this, and they assume that the earliest part of the church, interpreting these things crassly, literal, the early church thought that Jesus was going to return before everyone died in that first century. And so they would read something like Matthew 16, 28, where Jesus says to his disciples, after Peter has confessed him as Christ, after he says for the first time he confesses and foretells the fact that he's going to Jerusalem to die and to be raised from the grave, Jesus says, "...truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not notice the wording of this, taste death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom." And many people will read that and they will look and they will say, you you see, Matthew and the other apostles thought that Jesus was going to return before all these people died. He he was going to make his return. And the fact that he didn't means that they were all wrong. They, They didn't actually know what they were talking about. But John, John seems to imply something wrong with that entirely. We would expect John writing this around 80, 90, that's 50 years after Jesus was killed in Jerusalem and was risen from the grave 50 years or so after that fact happens. John doesn't say something like, well, really what Jesus meant by all of this was if you believe in me, if you keep my word, you will never see true death again. He, he doesn't qualify it. He, he doesn't say you won't really, really see death. You might see it kind of a part of death. You might experience some of death. You might kind of taste it a little bit, but but you're never really going to have it. No, John instead of doing what we would expect somebody to do, who is living at the very end of the first century and toning down Jesus' language, ratchets it up. He says, no, you will never see death. You will never taste death. So we can interpret this in a literalistic fashion, meaning that the people who are standing in front of him would never actually die. Clearly, John doesn't think that way because while John's writing, all at least most, probably all of the apostles that he served with, all the men who are in this passage, save Jesus Christ himself, has died and has not walked around on the earth again. They are good and they are gone. Likely what he means is something about what Paul means when he talks in 1 Thessalonians 4, using a metaphor for death, and that is sleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes this, Don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with those, with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You know, you spend about a quarter of your life, give or take, some more, some less, in sleep you lay your head down on a pillow and you lose all control of your body and you hallucinate for six hours a night. Whatever it is that you feel like your body is doing, it's not doing. You feel like it's scuba diving. You feel like you're scuba diving in the Caribbean. You feel like you're skydiving. You're being chased with wolves that are dressed like clowns. Whatever it is that's going through your head at night, none of that is actually what is happening to your body. But there will come a time in the morning praise the Lord, when you actually do wake up from the weird dream about the wolves dressed like clowns. And you wake up and you think, thank God it's another day. And Paul says that is actually closer to what we experience when we die than death is. Because you are not in your body, but Jesus will return you to your body. It is like a long and prolonged sleep. There is no finality to it. There's no true death here. It is more like sleep. And so Jesus is saying, those who abide by my word might sleep, but they are never going to die. And how great must Jesus be to make an offer like that? Think of the gall of someone to be able to proclaim something like that. He's not saying that I have been given the secret to make you live forever from God. But the secret is simply you do what I tell you to do. What I speak, you do, and that will make you live again. Here is long life in a bottle. So follow me, trust what I say, believe in me. It is either crass arrogance of some, some, someone who must absolutely be insane or it's a promise of a man who has power. Great power. Power over sin, power over death, power even of life itself. The Jews, and I don't think without reason, thought it to be the former. The arrogance of a man who is clearly a lunatic we know you have a demon they say as abraham died and all the prophets died are you better than them i think we could even take their statement a bit further they heard the word of god from god himself and you are saying that if we hear your word we will live forever is your revelation better than the revelation that they got from god is your word more powerful than the word that they heard from god And again, the problem turns back to who Jesus is. Such a great offer, such a wonderful promise must come from one who has the power to grant that promise. This is why one of the great reasons that the gospel is directly linked to who Jesus is and what the Trinity is. If you don't know how God has become man and you don't know who God is in the first place, you'll never be able to understand truly what the gospel is. Jesus cannot make this kind of offer and be just a great man Jesus can't make this kind of offer and just be a great creature who has embodied himself in flesh. The only way Jesus can make this offer and truly make the offer and truly be able to deliver on that offer is as he is no less than God himself. The problem that the Jews faced wasn't, wasn't that they didn't want what Jesus was offering. It was that the price that they would have to pay for that was too high thinking that the man who stood before them was nothing less than God himself was too much for them to pay. But it is no less than what you must pay. And here is where the problem meets the reality for us. Frankly, it's hard to tell unless you already have a belief in Jesus, whether he is a a lunatic or Lord here. Because you know what lunatics would continue to do? They would continue to say exactly what you think lunatics would say. If he was a lunatic, we would expect that he would continue to say, I am the light of the world. I am the one through whom you can have eternal life. I am all of these things. This is what lunatics do. They don't give up on it because they're insane. That's the whole purpose of insanity. At the same time, though, if he's Lord, we would expect that he would continue to say these things. We would expect that he would continue to press forward to people that he is indeed the Lord and he has great things to offer them. How can he prove them wrong? Is there any way that he could actually show himself, Lord? Well, one of the ways he couldn't do that is by changing his tune now. So let's consider Jesus not just as lunatic, but as liar. Could it be that he's just lying? The Jews ask him simply, who do you make yourself out to be? They're not simply asking him who he's claiming to be, because I think that they know very well what he's claiming. What they're actually asking him is, why don't you give us proof of all that you're claiming? If you think that you can do these things for us, why don't you show us? Who, you, who are you making yourself out to be? Do something that shows us that you are who you claim to be. Prove to us that you're good enough, strong enough, and godlike enough to be saying what you're saying. And Jesus' response again is ever faithful and kind to them and, and just honest before God. He says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I can't I can't conjure up miracles for you. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not going to do the things that you want me to do in order to prove to you that I am who I say I am. That's not my job here. My job is not to make my own glory apparent to you. My job is to do what my Father has asked me to do. It is His job to glorify me. The Father will give Him glory in time, and Jesus is content to wait for that. There are no miracles. In all of this chapter, we've had nary a miracle. They're asking for one now, and one will not be given to them now. There will be one very shortly. There will be more even after that. But here and now, Jesus refuses to bow to their request, to prove to them that he is who he claims to be. He says, You say that he is our God, but you don't know him. Certainly the knowledge that they have of God is present. They know facts about God. They know that God is their creator. They know that God is their redeemer. They know that God spoke to Moses out of a burning bush. They know that God made mighty acts of deliverance in the Old Testament. They know that God drove the people out of the promised land. They know facts about God. Those facts are fantastic, but facts do not imply what Jesus requires as knowledge. You need facts to know God, but that's not true knowledge of God. I'm pretty loath to use the word relationship because I I just feel like it's abused quite a bit, especially in Christianity, but I I don't know of any other way to put it. You have to have an abiding relationship with Jesus and God to know him the way Jesus is claiming you are to know him. Just having facts in your head is not enough. Jesus knows and has experienced everything that they say about God, that he is creator, that he is father, that he is savior, that he is redeemer, that he has done these mighty acts of deliverance. Jesus doesn't know it the way Abraham experienced, and he doesn't know it the way Moses experienced, and he doesn't know it the way David experienced. He knows it in a completely different way, but he was there. He experienced those things. He knows truly who this God is. Again, Jesus always does what is pleasing to the Father. He always does what he sees and always does what he is told. So Jesus knows the Father intimately. So Jesus can't start to say otherwise. He says, if I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. He says, I can't be a liar about this. I can't now change my tune and start saying that I don't really know the Father or that that I am just like you people. I, I am not like you. I know the Father, and I can't say otherwise. If he were to change his tune, he would either have been lying before, why would you believe what he said, or he's lying now, why would you believe what he said? Now, this is especially true because of who Jesus is claiming to be. Because Jesus isn't just claiming to be somebody who gets up and speaks for God, he is claiming to be God himself. And for Jesus to get up and to lie about this is impossible. And what I mean by impossible here is not that it is impossible the way that I can't eat five gallons of macaroni and cheese is impossible. That's not logically impossible, that's physically impossible. I mean, it is absolutely, certainly impossible for God to get up and tell a lie. There is no logic behind it. It is the most illogical thing that could happen. Remember, truth is not a a checklist of facts that God checks before he acts. Truth isn't something that God meets. Truth is something that God is. When God acts, that is truth. When God speaks, that is reality. When God says, huh, there's Jupiter. I I should have called Jupiter into existence. I'll, I'll just say, hey, there's Jupiter and there's... No, he says... Hey, there's a planet named Jupiter, and all of a sudden there is a planet named Jupiter. When he speaks, reality comes into existence. When he opens his mouth, that is now reality. That is truth. Because what he says is what creation is. What he thinks is what reality is. So for Jesus to get up and say, I'm not God, or I don't know the Father, means that the reality that has been painted by God is no longer a reality. It is the undoing of everything that God has done and that God is. Because reality is the result for him to lie means that reality is a lie and that it's not real and therefore doesn't exist. He is the one who upholds the world by the power of his voice. If he were to lie, all of reality goes spinning out of control. There is no more reality. The most illogical statement that we can think of as human beings is something called The law of non-contradiction, you can't say that A is not A. There's something more fundamental than that, and that is that God cannot lie. He cannot speak something that is not true. Jesus says, I can't lie. And if he is true, he cannot be a liar. So we again find ourselves in this sort of unenviable position. If Jesus is who he claims to be and can do what he claims he can do, then he would do precisely what he's doing. He would say, I am who I am. And I can give you this if you abide in my word. But if he's a liar, we would expect that he would continue on lying. There's no reason for him to stop now. He's already fooled a whole bunch of people. If he's a lunatic, we would expect him to go on being a lunatic. How are we to know? How are we to know that Jesus is truly Lord? That brings us to the third point, which you might have guessed is Lord. Jesus reaffirms that the problem isn't really a problem. It is possible for you to make the right choice here. It's possible because other people have made that right choice before. And he doesn't go back to a common example. He doesn't point at his disciples. He goes all the way back to Abraham and he says, you know, I know you guys are fighting about this and you don't understand me rightly, but there is a guy who's really important that you seem to really like. And that's Abraham. Notice how he speaks about Abraham here. He says, your father, Abraham. Again, so kind now you can read that and you can think ah uh, what he means by that is he's being sarcastic i don't think he is i think he's saying you want to be children of abraham so badly then act like him your father abraham saw my day and rejoiced he saw it and was glad there is precedent for believing in Jesus as who he is. And he goes all the way back to the founding of the nation in Abraham. The question is, what did Abraham see? What did Abraham know? And how did he precisely rejoice in this? Remember in Genesis 1, God creates everything perfect and good, and he is with his people in the garden. There is presence and there is blessing. They have everything that they could possibly want, but when they fall, when they sin against God, two things happen immediately. One, they are cursed by God. And two, they are thrust out of the garden. They are thrust out of his presence and they are not allowed to enter back in. The remaining chapters of the book of Genesis up until the calling of Abraham are simply playing out the very fact of this rebellion and what it means before God. They are distanced from God. He is not with them anymore and his curse lies upon them. So you have Cain and Abel and the murder of Abel by Cain. You have the lineage of death in Genesis 5. You have the coming flood, which is salvation but is also damnation for the vast majority of humans on earth and plants and animals as well. What you have is a God who is angry with his creation, who is angry with what has happened and wrath being poured out upon them. Even in the Tower of Babel, they are trying to get close to God and God says, no, you can't be close to me. You can't be near me and he scatters them. There is no blessing, there is only curse. There is no nearness, there is only separation. But then, oddly, he shows up to this one guy and he says, Now listen, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God comes near to Abraham where there was only distance before, here he comes near. So near, he says, the way I am going to relate to all the rest of the world is how I relate with you. How they relate to you is how I will relate to them. There is nearness there and there's also the undoing of curse. To think that the undoing of curse does not mean to Abraham the undoing of death is to simply misunderstand what the curse was in the first place. To hear God saying, I am going to bless the families of the world means nothing less than death is over. Now, Abraham doesn't know how that's going to work out. He knows that it's going to work out through one of his offspring, which is why he is so concerned with the fact that he doesn't have a true offspring. He says, I, I, I know that you've made these great promises to me, but I don't have an offspring to pass it down to. Eleazar of Damascus is the one who's going to get everything. And God says, no, 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 no. I will visit you. And Sarah will have a child. And he laughs He laughs because it's somewhat stupid. She is super old, and I am super older, and and we just can't have kids. But he also laughs because he's rejoicing. God is going to do it. He will give us a child. We will see the offspring. We will hold him with our hands, our very own child, the one who is going to bring forward all of the promises of God. God will make that true. Paul says that this promise of God in Genesis 12 is nothing less than the gospel. Abraham hears these words, thinks, There is a day coming when God's presence will be with his people, and the curse will be no more. Whatever it was that Abraham saw, it was fuzzy, it was distorted, and it wasn't Nearly as crystal clear as what Jesus is saying is happening in front of the Jews now, but what he is saying is it is exactly the same image. God has drawn near to you, and I come to you reversing the curse. I come to you giving life. Abraham saw that, and he rejoiced in it. Be like him. They respond to him, listen, man, you're not even 50. He's probably nowhere near 50. 35, 37, something like that. You're not even 50. And you you claim that you know Abraham. That's like 1,500 years ago. Now, my math might not be great, but those numbers don't match up. I don't think that you overlapped with him very well. So Jesus makes one of his incredibly famous statements, probably one of the most famous statements in the book of John, and certainly in all of the Gospels. He says, before Abraham was, I am we've talked about this sort of I am statement. He made this statement already in verses 24 and 28, and they're not nearly as famous. They're not nearly as famous because it's different here than it was there. There, the grammar was such that a misunderstanding could arise. It wasn't bad grammar. It was just sort of incomplete. And you, you can tell by their question in verse 20, 24. After he says it in verse 25, they say, well, who are you? He says, if you don't believe that I am, right? And they say, well, well then who are you? There's... The surrounding context is still sort of gaining traction for them, and they understand what he is saying. They can make sense of it. But here, the grammar is, quite honestly, so incredibly wrong that it must be something else altogether. If he had said something enigmatic like, before Abraham was, I was, or before Abraham was, I would be, right? They they might have been confused, and they might have asked more questions. They might have said, see, you really are a lunatic, and they might have walked away. But the fact that the grammar is so wrong, the focus is now only on what Jesus could have possibly meant by those words, assuming that Jesus didn't use wrong grammar every time he opened his mouth. So when he uses this wrong grammar here, it sticks out. It's like a thumb hit by a hammer. It's pulsating and and filled with meaning. What does he possibly mean by that? And there is only one thing he could possibly mean by it. Up in verses 24 and 28, there could be several things that he means by it. By here, because it sticks out so much, there's only one thing he could mean by it, and they know exactly what that is. Whether you think he's picking it up from the book of Isaiah, whether you think he's picking it up from the book of Exodus, Jesus is claiming, without any hesitation, that he is the embodiment of the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh, the one who has created all things, the one who has redeemed Israel from the desert. Not only is he claiming it, he's claiming that he is him, that he was already, he always is. Notice he says, before Abraham was, I am. I have not even changed, he says. This isn't a different form for me. I've taken on something else, but I am still the same God that your father's called God. There's no doubt that the Jews understand him this way. This is why they pick up stones to throw at him. There is no other option here. He must be claiming to be God. This is why Lewis says what he says all the way back. You can't see Jesus as just a great moral teacher. It doesn't appear as though the Jews could possibly stomach him that way. Listen, Judaism is incredibly flexible. Go, go and read like Second Temple Judaism. Read the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've got wildly different beliefs. They can tolerate different beliefs. What they cannot and never have tolerated is blasphemy. This is what gets Jesus in trouble. Not the fact that he's coming and preaching good works. Not that he's coming and preaching moral things. What gets him in trouble is not being a good moral teacher. What gets him in trouble is he's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. That's what gets him in trouble. There's no room to think that Jesus is just sort of a good man who is misunderstood. He's either truly insane, he is a liar, or he is the Lord. And again, the question becomes for us, how can we know that? Isn't that the thing? Is Jesus Lord? And if so, then we should listen to what he has to say. If not, we brush him off into the dustpan of history and we find somebody else to cling on to. And frankly, if we're being honest, the safest bet, given where we are in John, is to think that he is not who he claimed to be. After all, how many times has God ever enfleshed himself in human form? How many times has God come down to earth and presented himself and done miracles like this? It just hasn't happened. You can look back through the Old Testament. It's just, it's not there. This kind of reality is never present. The safe money is on its not being true, outside of some incredibly good proof. So do we have that incredibly good proof? How would we test his claims? We could try and do what he says and see if that works. So we can try and and believe and abide in his word and see if that works, but that doesn't really work because that's what we're trying to prove in the first place so it doesn't work. So we we gotta do something else. To claim that you have the ability to grant people life means no less than having the power over life and death. It means that you can put a stop plug in death. You can stop it altogether and that you can let life flow freely, that you have the power to grant life and liberty to all who seek it from you. This is, as we've said, a direct claim to be God on high, to be the Lord of life, which is, ironically, exactly what I am means. It means that he is life itself. He is the very fountain of life. Life flows from him. You can't can't stop that. There's no way to kill God because God is nothing but pure life. There is nothing to take from him if you take away his life. He is life. So what does one have to do in order to show that they're life itself? To show that death has no real claim on him, you might say that he could just live forever. So, if he were just to go on living, that would show that he has life in himself and that he never has to die. I don't think that it actually works that way, though. I think that you would never know whether he was actually greater than death, because you wouldn't know that he ever overcame it. The same way I will stand up in front of you before God and man and say truthfully, and you might not believe it, this is true I have never once lost a fight to Mike Tyson undefeated, undefeated, it will go on my tombstone. Don't tell Mike I said that. So that doesn't mean that I'm a better fighter than Mike Tyson. Because I haven't lost to him doesn't mean that I'm better than him. What I would need to do is take a punch from the man, wake up in a coma five years later, and then go back to work, right? I would need to, I would need to do something that shows that I'm greater than him. So what does Jesus do? He takes everything death has to give him. He goes to the cross. He takes all that death can pile on him all of our sin, all of our wickedness, everything is given to him. He allows it to overcome him. As he says in John 10 I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. He allows death, he stands there, does not fight. As Peter says, he didn't revile, he didn't threaten, he allows it to overtake him. So that in three days, when he is good and dead, and known to be good and dead, he can rise up from the grave. Doing that shows us that he is indeed the Lord of life. The resurrection is all the proof we need. If Jesus got up out of that grave, every blessed thing he said is true. Everything he said is reliable and trustworthy. Everything he said you can bank your life on and you need to bank your life on it. There is salvation in no one else because if he is God, then he is the only hope you have. He is the very image of God who has been sent to take our sin away from us, to die a death that we deserved and to show that he can conquer it in a way that you and I cannot. We will all submit to death, but Jesus will get us up out of the grave again because he has the power of all life and he has the power over all death abide in his word and you will never taste death stand in his light and you will never walk in darkness come and drink from his fountain and you will have water bubbling up in you forever this is the promise that he makes you and you can trust it because he's not insane because he's not a liar but you can trust it because he is the lord let us pray